Good morning, brothers and sisters. My name is Phil Comstock. It's my pleasure to read scripture this morning from Galatians 3, verses 15 through 29. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and, his, and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. For you, all, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. morning. We'll try that again. Good morning. It's good to see you. I didn't give you much of an opportunity. I do something different every week. It's hard to predict what's coming. So uh, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. We are so glad that you're here. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad that you are with us today. If you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. So one of the things that they don't tell you when you become a parent is that there are all sorts of things that you do within the course of your parenting that your children perceive one way, but that you had a completely different intention for. And what I mean is this, my my wife informed me once we had kids and once our kids um, got old enough that they started needing kind of correction and discipline, she informed me that whether or not I intended to, I have this face when I correct them. I tend to furrow my brow and my face gets very serious and I give them a look and I speak a little harsher perhaps than I intended to and I have a tendency to point my finger. I have an idea where I picked that up probably in my own home. Uh, Not to point any fingers at anybody else, but it's probably a learned behavior. It's probably not really my fault that I do that. But anyway, that's just the way that I interact with my kids. And so on more than one occasion, I've gotten after them and Jessica afterwards has come up to me and goes, hey, when you correct the kids, you need to smile or soften your face or do something to indicate that you're not angry. And I said, well, I'm not, I'm not angry. I'm, not, I'm totally fine. I don't even know why you'd think I'm angry, right? 
She goes, well, that's not exactly what your face is communicating. And on one particular instance, in, in particular, I remember getting after the boys after a long day of having gotten after the boys, and I called out to them and told them to stop what they were, stop running, stop it right now. Did one of those kinds of things. Uh, and Jessica looked at me and she goes, is that, are you, are you angry? Is that, is that an angry? And I said, no, I'm not angry at all. She goes, I took a half step back before I realized you weren't talking to me, right? That kind of a thing. And so I've had to learn over the years how to interact with my kids in a way that particularly within the course of discipline and correction, but really just as an overall means of communication, trying to communicate with them that I'm not angry when I'm not angry. And on one particular occasion, I remember having corrected one of my sons, and when I was done correcting him, having a conversation with him, talking to him about what had happened, his question was to me was, Dad, do you still love me when I do something wrong? which is just a crushing question to hear from your kid because of course, of course you still love them and of course your affection for them hasn't changed and they're just as much your child in the moment after they do something wrong as they were the moment before they did something wrong. And so I was starting to have this conversation with him and, and, and let him know that, um, that, that his, my love for him and his place in our family is secure. It's unchanging, it doesn't shift because of his behavior, but that position that he has within our family is because of his belonging. In other words, our children are our children because they are our children. They're our children because that is their identity in relationship to us, and their, their status as a child is never in question or in jeopardy. It never changes, and it never shifts. And in this particular text this morning, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is going to make the same argument about our identity that we've been granted through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's going to affirm for us, once again, remind us of the identity that we've been given, this unshakable, unchangeable, unshifting relationship that we have with God. And so Paul here is concluding really this treatise on the law and the gospel with this assurance. He's assuring the Galatian church that not only does the gospel grant them justification and the blessings of Abraham and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but that we find our deepest desire and our deepest human need, our very identity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this week is really the first half of, of what's really a two-part sermon where we're going to talk about some of these implications. And you might wonder where this conversation can go, given that for now for chapters, Paul has been addressing the relationship between the law and the gospel. But as we move into this week and then next week, we'll begin to see the implications of that gospel identity that we're given. And so in this final salvo on this topic in chapter 3, Paul gives us several illustrations by which we can understand this assurance, by which we can be reminded of the place that we've been given in Jesus Christ, the relationship that we have with him through the, uh, have with the Father rather, through him, and then the relationship and community that is born out with one another because of it. So read with me if you would, beginning in verse 15, here is Paul's first illustration. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. 
So Paul starts this section by correcting a misapprehension that many of us bring to the Bible. In fact, I would venture to say that most people in our, particularly in our modern era, within our our, uh, understanding of evangelicalism, many people bring this understanding to the Bible, which is this. Many people have a tendency to construct an artificial wall between the Old and the New Testament. We tend to view God differently between the Old and the New Testament, his interactions with mankind differently, even the means of salvation we tend to view as different between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So people will read the Old Testament and they'll think, well, that's the way that people were saved in the Old Testament was by obedience to the law. That's where their salvation came from. They obeyed the law of God and therefore were accepted by God. And so the people of God had to obey all of these rules and partake in all of these different observances. They had to perform all these sacrifices. And by doing so, they became acceptable to God. But now we don't have to do any of those things because of Jesus Christ. In other words, they presume that the gospel of Jesus was plan B. They presume that God had originally intended for us to find our way to him through obedience to the law, and when that wasn't working so well, he sent Jesus to make up the difference. And Paul points out the problem with that thinking, namely the Old Testament itself. He points out to them that uh, he says, you need to remember that even at the outset of God's interaction with his people, the law wasn't even in place. In fact, Paul points out, the law wasn't going to come into place until 430 years after God's interactions with Abraham. And God's interaction with Abraham, if you'll remember back to our series where we studied this, his primary interaction with Abraham was through promises, was through covenants. It was through him declaring, here's what I'm going to do for you and in you and through you. Here's the way I'm going to interact with you. Here's what I'm going to bring about through your line. Here's how blessing is going to come to the earth. And so God comes to Abraham in Genesis 15, among other places in the book of Genesis, and he says to him, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Your children are going to be like the sand of the sea. They're going to be like the stars of the heaven. There's going to be so many of them. And he says this to a man who is in his 90s and does not have children. He says, through this line, this promised line, all the people of the entire earth are going to be blessed. Think about the magnitude of that promise. He says, all the nations are going to be blessed through your line, through the son that you still have not received, though you are well past the child-bearing ages. Through this son is going to come a lineage so vast and so broad that you're not going to be able to count them. And through your line is going to come one who is so blessed and so magnificent and so gracious that everyone is going to be blessed through him. And to seal that promise, God established a covenant with Abraham by ritually passing through the halved bodies of sacrificial animals. If you remember the story, God had Abraham cut these animals in half, he laid them out, and then God himself passed through the middle of them. And what God was saying in that moment is, Abraham, if I fail to uphold my promise to you, may what has has happened to these animals happen to me. In essence, God was saying to Abraham, I'm putting my holiness, my character, my power, my name, my word, I'm putting all of those things down as the collateral of my guarantee. And if I'm not faithful to my word, 
May what has happened to these animals, being cut in half, torn apart, ceasing to exist, may the essence of who I am as God cease to exist. That's a guarantee. That's a promise. And in return, what Abraham provided him was nothing. Nothing. Abraham didn't seek out God. Abraham didn't ask this of God. Abraham didn't put down any collateral. Abraham brought nothing to the table except his own frailty and faithlessness. It was God who initiated, it was God who promised, it was God who assured, and it was God who delivered from beginning to end. And the reason why that distinction is so important is that through operating this way, God was giving us insight into how it is that he tends to operate with humanity. That our God is a God of covenant, not a God of contract. And here's the difference. In a contract, each party comes to the table, they agree to certain conditions, and if either party fails to hold up their end of the deal, the contract is no longer binding on the other party. It's the idea of, if you do your part, I will do my part. And if either one of those two parties breaks those conditions, the deal is off. But God's covenants operate very, very differently. God's covenants operate much more like what we know as a will. In fact, one scholar rightly pointed out that the word translated covenant in verse 15 can also be translated as testament in the same way that we would talk about a last will and testament. So think about that. If someone writes a will and and passes it away, the conditions of that will are final. They can't go back and be changed. They, they, They can't be shifted after the fact. They can't be amended or altered or added to. That will is final and binding. And Paul is saying, in the very same way, God's promises to you are binding. They don't change and they don't shift. He doesn't go back on his word. He doesn't go back and add conditions. He doesn't change the original conditions of the, of the promise. He holds himself to his word and he does not change his mind. And Paul uses this illustration as a way of pushing against the Judaizers. Because if you remember what had happened in the church in Galatia, these Jewish men who had claimed Christianity for themselves but were still holding fast to the old Judaic law came into the church and began to say, if you want to know God, if you want to be a part of his covenant people, if you want to be saved, if you want to have a relationship with him, not only do you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to adopt the practices of Judaism. You also need to obey all of the Old Testament law. And Paul's answer is so insightful and profound because what Paul says is the Judaizers aren't going back far enough. They're failing to see the kind of God that we actually have. They're forgetting how all of this began and they're forgetting how God primarily interacts with his people, which is through promise. The gospel, the promised good news of salvation through Jesus Christ was not the plan B to the plan A of the Old Testament law. Salvation by faith in Christ has been and remains the only thing by which God provides salvation to his people. And we find that right in the law itself. Genesis chapter 15 is exactly what Paul is referencing here. And and, and as one scholar talked about this, he said Paul is pointing out that within God's covenant of grace, it is the promise that takes precedence over the law. As John Stott was going to say it, the promise set forth a religion of God. 
God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative. But the law set forth a religion of men, men's duties, men's works, men's responsibility. The promise, standing for the grace of God, had only to be believed, but the, but the law, standing for the works of men, had to be obeyed. And what Paul is pointing out here is what Abraham experienced in Genesis chapter 15, that after God came and said, this is the promise that I'm giving to you, and here's what I'm going to do for your family, and here's how salvation is going to come about for them, and here's how you're going to be saved. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 says this, and Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. That right within the book of Genesis, right at the outset of God's interaction with humankind, right at the beginning, God's interaction was through promise. Therefore, says Paul, the law which was given to Moses some 430 years after the promise of Abraham could never have been the means by which people received salvation. Or Abraham, the very father of the nation of Israel, could not have been saved because the law would have been delivered too late for him. And this would have blown the minds of the Judaizers because, of course, they had this very high regard for Abraham. They viewed him as their father, not only ethnically, but spiritually. And what Paul had just said undermined their presumption about their relationship with Abraham and by, vir- and by virtue of that, their relationship with God. What he had just said is, if salvation is dependent on the law, if your salvation is dependent on your ability to obey the law, how would Abraham himself have been saved? Because he didn't have the law. He is blowing up the false doctrine that these Judaizers are carrying into the church. Paul has just made an incontrovertible argument that salvation only comes through the promise of God to deliver a Savior. And verse 16, the fulfillment of that promise is Jesus Christ. Now, all of this has kind of been a doctrinal setup. He's going into the nitty-gritty of Old Testament law to make this argument, and now he's beginning to apply it in verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. He's saying if you receive the promises of God through your own adherence to the law, then it wasn't a promise from God to begin with. A promise is not something that you can make happen on someone else's behalf. A promise is only something that can be received by faith. So think of it this way. Whenever you go to a wedding, you sit there in in the congregation, you're watching this wedding take place, and the minister gets up and he begins to walk this couple through the vows. And I can remember very specifically the vows that Jessica and I had 15 years ago now. And imagine, just for a moment, if I would have stood on my wedding day, held Jessica's hands and looked deeply uh, into her eyes and said, I promise to love you and cherish you and be with you forever in sickness and in health for richer, for poorer. So long as you make my favorite meal every Wednesday night and let me win every argument, so be it. Amen. Well, where's the promise in that? It's not a promise at all. That's not a covenantal promise. That's not me committing myself to something regardless of what situation we face in life. What that is is a transactional agreement. If you do this, I will do this, and if you don't, I'm out. 
And in the same way that there would be no romance and and no love demonstrated by those sort of wedding vows, in the very same way, there is no promise from God that is dependent on your ability to comply. It would no longer be a promise. It would be a deal. It would be striking a compromise. And in the same way, says Paul, if God promised his blessing, his his faithfulness, and a spiritual inheritance to Abraham, but put up a bunch of conditions, then God wouldn't be proving himself to be good and kind and generous. He'd be proving himself to be needy and insecure and stingy. If God needs you to do something for him, he's no longer God. If God is dependent on you in any way, he is no longer God. It cuts against his very character and his very nature. But, says one commentator, salvation in Christ does not rest on a law that we inevitably break. It rests on a promise that God cannot break. So Paul then asks the obvious question to anyone who's been paying attention, which is this. Then what's the point of the law? If the law was never intended to bring about our salvation, if salvation was never through the law, why did God even bother giving it? As we talked about last week, we know that the law is a good thing. We know that it was inspired by God, breathed by God, given for our benefit. So then what's the purpose of the law if it wasn't to bring about salvation? If it wasn't to actually bring us closer relationally to God? And Paul asks and answers that question in verse 19. Why then the law, says Paul? Here's his answer, and it's not what we'd expect. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, that is the spiritual heritage, the spiritual offspring of Abraham, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. If your ability to obey the law could bring about your salvation, then salvation would be through the law, says Paul. But the scripture, verse 22, imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now that paragraph is deep. And there's a lot going on here, but particularly this phrase that he gives when he says the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. How in the world does the the Scripture imprison things under sin? And here Paul lays out two big reasons why the law was given. Here's the first. The law was given to reveal our behavior. It was given to reveal our behavior. Verse 19, it was added because of transgressions. See, the law shined a light on the sin in my life that I was not aware of. This is much of what the Apostle Paul writes about in Romans chapters 5 through 7, but particularly in Romans 7. Listen to these words of Paul. He's writing about his own experience of the gospel and his own experience of the law, and here's what he says about the law. Verse, chapter 7, verse 5 of Romans. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, listen to this phrase, our sinful passions aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. If it had not been for the law, says Paul, I would not have known sin. 
For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So Paul is saying this, in essence, ignorance is bliss. Before the law, before I knew the law of God, before God's law revealed what the expectations and standards of God's holiness were, I wasn't even aware that I was sinning. I wasn't even aware of how sinful and broken my own heart was. I wasn't even aware of my own need for a Savior. But the law began to reveal it to me. And what's more than that, Paul says, not only did the law reveal my sin to me that was already existent in my heart, but he says my sinful flesh is actually aroused by the law. In other words, the law brought about more sin in my life. Now, how in the world can that be? Because the law was given with all kinds of instructions and all kinds of commands, do this and don't do that and do this and don't do that. So in what way could the law possibly arouse the flesh to commit even more sin? And Paul here is addressing the human tendency that all of us have to push the boundaries of what we know to be wrong. Have you ever had the experience of not wanting to particularly do something until you were told explicitly that you were not allowed to do it? And as soon as you're told that you're not allowed to do that, everything in you wants to do it. It's the age-old thing of walking by a sign that says, wet cement, do not touch. And everything in you is going, I bet I could touch that wet cement. Let's see what we can do with this. So let me give you the most petty but honest example that I could think of. If I go get in my car right now and I put it in drive without putting my seatbelt on, it starts to beep at me. And it'll beep at me 50 times. It'll beep at me five times slowly and then 45 times very quickly and very annoyingly. And the reason that I know that is on more than one occasion, I have waited for the beeping to stop to put my seatbelt on. This thing is telling me you need to put your seatbelt on, and I'm going, I don't like the fact that my car is telling me what to do. I bought you, I paid for you, you work for me, and you're going to tell me to go put my seatbelt on. Even though my car is trying to remind me to do something that ultimately is to my benefit, I hate that my car is telling me what to do. Now, is that petty? Of course it is. Is it indicative of my wicked heart? Yes, it is. Should the automaker mind their own business? I think so. (laughs) And that's why I think Paul's illustration here of covetousness is such a good one. It's such a good one because it's not the most obvious example you would naturally think of. If Paul said here, I wouldn't have even known it was wrong to murder if the Bible didn't tell me that I shouldn't murder, we would all go, well, wait a minute. It seems like maybe there's something that would give an indication to you that that's wrong. After all, every culture in the world, from the most advanced society to the most backwater tribe, has some level of understanding that murder is criminal. It's written on our hearts, is what Romans chapter 1 and 2 is going to say. So in some sense or another, everybody knows that that is wrong. But that's not the example that Paul chooses here. He chooses covetousness. See, coveting is something that happens internally. It's something that's not immediately, it's not something that's immediately apparent to other people. It's invisible. And, as if that's not enough, it seems harmless to us. Because it doesn't directly hurt the other person. What does it matter to you if I want something that belongs to you so long as I don't act on that? But, says Paul, 
when the law came to me and said, Paul, don't covet, I became aware that my coveting was a sin against a holy God who is able to meet my needs even if he chooses not to provide all of my wants. Because when I covet, I'm telling God implicitly that he made a mistake with me, that he did something wrong, that he withheld something good. In other words, says Paul, even the sin that we think of as innocent is a form of rebellion. And in that way, Paul says, the law imprisoned everything under sin. The law revealed sin to you. The law drove you in some ways to sin because it entices flesh. It reveals what's going on internally. It drives everything that is fleshly and sinful about us to pursue things that we ought not pursue and that now through the law we know we ought not pursue. And therefore, it's as if the world has become a prison to us. Our sin has ensnared us. It's chained us. It's the reason we become addicted to sin. It's the reason we find ourselves committing the same sin over and over. It's the reason we do things knowing we ought not do them. The law imprisoned everything under sin. It had no way to change my heart. The best it could do, potentially, was curb my behavior. Because, according to verse 21, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And that leads us to the second, the second purpose of the law. Not only does it reveal our sin, reveal our behavior, but the law was given to be a guardian. Verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now the word translated guardian here has a very particular application within Greco-Roman culture. In this particular culture, if you were a family of any means and of any wealth, you would have multiple servants who worked with you, and some of those servants would be established as guardians within your home. And so if you had a child, from from the time that child was weaned from the mother to the time that child became old enough to make his or her own decisions within adulthood, they had a guardian assigned to them by the parents who would help them with uh, with their daily responsibilities, particularly discipline. In fact, there's all kinds of artwork from this particular era where people who were guardians were pictured holding rods or staffs. They were the people that were directly in charge of disciplining children, correcting children. And so the guardian would take your child to school, and while your child was at school learning from their teachers, there was a particular room where all the guardians would sit, waiting to collect the children at the end of the day. And if that child on the way home began to do something that the parents would disapprove of, it was the guardian's responsibility to discipline the child. And so some of your translations may not use the word guardian. They may say something like schoolmaster. That's an appropriate translation, but the problem with that word is that it implies that the law trains for the sake of self-improvement until you reach graduation. And that really doesn't do justice to what the law does. The job of the guardian in the Greco-Roman world was to serve as a disciplinarian. It was to punish. It's what led John Stott in his commentary on this text to say this. Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up all our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. 
Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and for life. Not until the law has driven us to deep despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us, even to hell, will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. In other words, the law brings us to the point of humility. It relentlessly beats us down and relentlessly beats out of us any foolish notion that we've got it together and that we're pretty good people. Because any time I think I've arrived, the law shows up to reveal my sin and knock me back down. That is the purpose of the law. And that is why it is so incredibly foolish for us to look to the law, either the Old Testament law or any law of our own making, to provide salvation and comfort and peace and happiness. That was never the purpose of the law. The law was there to correct, to discipline, to beat. And that's a good thing, says Paul, because it prepared me for faith. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you all, if you know him, are sons of God through faith. Paul here uses the language of adoption to describe this transition. He's saying, you don't need the guardianship of the law anymore. Because now you have been made sons and daughters of God with all the privileges and all the rights that go along with that sonship. And you've been adopted through Jesus Christ and brought into the family by faith in Him. And the beauty of that adoption analogy is that it illustrates the fatherhood of God in such a graphic way. Because as one scholar said, there is nothing a child can do to earn his way into a family. There is no test to pass. There is no work to be done for the child to prove why he'd be a beneficial addition. There's no expectation of payback at a later date. No, a child is brought in solely because of the love and compassion and tenderness of his parents. He's absolutely dependent on them for his life and provision, and acceptance is extended to him not because of anything he's done or anything he could do, but solely because the parents have chosen to accept him. He's brought in as a member of the family with no probationary period, no trial runs, and no return policy. He is in, accepted and free. And Paul is saying to the Galatians, do not let these Judaizers handcuff you with add-ons and addendums. The promise of God for salvation has been fulfilled in Christ and given to you free of charge. So don't try buying extended warranties for a free gift that comes with a lifetime guarantee. Don't waste your efforts. Don't chain yourself up. And he further presses them, don't let these Judaizers try to stick you at the kids' table when there's a seat with your name on it next to Jesus. Look what he says in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul is saying, look, you Gentile believers, you are no less sons and daughters of God than your Jewish counterparts. 
You've not been shunted off to the side. You're not second-class citizens. You are Abraham's offspring. And you can imagine the livid anger that would have overcome the Judaizers as they heard this. Claims of ethnic privilege to Gentiles. Now this is an incredible text, these few verses. Sermons can and should be preached just on these few verses, but for the sake of time, we'll go through this quickly. But I want to start by saying this. This, t- this text was as countercultural 2,000 years ago as it is today, but for very different reasons. In the time in which this was written, this would have been startling instruction because Greeks would wake up and pray to their gods, think- thanking them that they were Greeks and not barbarians. Jews would wake up and pray to God, saying, God, I thank you that you didn't make me a Gentile, and I thank you that you didn't make me a woman. So for Paul to give this instruction to these people and saying, in Christ, there is no no favoritism being displayed, would have been stunning for these people to hear. And likewise, listen, Likewise, in our time, to read this is startling for very different reasons. What's interesting to me is that what our culture currently claims to want more than anything, which is equity and inclusion, has already been perfectly expressed in the gospel. See, the purpose of this text is not to try to erase certain God-ordained distinctions. And that, by the way, is what many people try to do with this text. They try to twist it to fit all kinds of different political and religious narratives. But for instance, the purpose of this text is not to claim that gender is a social construct, that God does not see gender. In fact, a strong argument can be made that this text actually supports God's created design of men and women being distinct. You'll notice how he states this. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. Do you notice the change in language there? He's actually quoting from Genesis chapter 1. He's appealing to God's created design of men and women before the fall. That before sin even entered in the world, part of God's intended design and creation was to have men and women with particular roles and responsibilities for each. And likewise, the Bible is not trying to pretend that there is no distinction between ethnic groups. All you have to do is read Romans chapter 9 and Paul's discussion of his his love for his Jewish heritage to see that, that there is a recognizable distinction between ethnic groups, nor... Is he trying to pretend that there is no distinction in social class? All you have to do is read the book of Philemon to find that. Rather, what Paul is suggesting, and it is infinitely more powerful to suggest, is that in Christ you have an identity that becomes more valuable to you than any other distinctive. So your distinction as a male or a female is a piece of your identity. Your ethnic heritage is part of who you are. Your social class, to some extent or another, defines in society's eyes where you belong. But what Paul is saying is there is a far more significant identifier, which is do you belong to Christ? Because Christ shows no favoritism. Ethnically, in terms of status, or in terms of gender. 
What Paul is saying is that in the eyes of God, when it comes to his acceptance of you, your ethnicity, your station, and your sex do not define or affect your worth. Your value is wholly wrapped up in the fact that you belong to Christ. And he says, you've been baptized into Christ. And this, by the way, does not appear to be a reference to water baptism the way that we understand it, but to the fact that when your faith was placed in Jesus Christ, you were immersed in him. Encompassed, saturated, surrounded by Christ. And you were given the spirit of Christ to indwell you. His life was placed in you and your life was placed in him. So now God views you, listen, with as much value and love and acceptance as he does his own son. So when our culture, either through governmental policy or through particular speech codes, tries to erase these distinctions in the name of equity, they are at best creating a poor counterfeit of what the gospel actually provides. Except their solution leads inevitably to polarization and and inequity and resentment. And what Paul is saying is in Christ, we are provided a far better way. One that recognizes the distinctions between people groups and the genders, but allows for dignity and community for all who are in Christ. This led the theologian Philip Ryken to say this, the church is not a raceless, classless, androgynous society. When we come to Christ, we do not cease to be Asians or Africans, bosses or employees or girls and boys. With regard to our physical and social identity, we continue to be what we have always been. Only now we are what we are in Christ. Do you see what a better way that provides? That your worth in the eyes of God is not defined by any standard with which this world defines your worth. That your ultimate satisfaction and happiness and peace rests solely in Christ. And do you realize, brother and sister, as we're going to pick up on all of this next week, but do you realize that the reason that we have this sonship, this daughterhood, this family of faith, this community of saints, is that you were made a son, you were made a daughter because Christ was forsaken. That as we talked about in the last few weeks, when Jesus Christ cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he was not treated like a son so that you could be. He was treated with all of the sin and all of the guilt and all of the wrath that you and I deserve so that you could forever have this relationship. So that you could be a son and be a daughter and never have that identity stripped from you. Regardless of what this world says about you or does to you, your identity is forever secured in Christ. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You have been made heirs of that promise. Just like I would say to my son, you are mine because you're mine. Because you belong to me and because I love you. And through Christ, God says the very same thing of you today 
if your faith is in him. Be encouraged and be uplifted by what God declares about you and to you today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for texts that stretch our minds, that cause us to ask difficult questions. And God, thank you as well for the answers that you provide through your word, answers that we could never come to on our own, answers that we could never figure out given all the time in the world. But God, thankfully, you have provided in miraculous form. You've given us promises by which we know who we are, by which we know where our salvation comes from, and by which we know to whom we belong. God, I pray that you would drive home in our hearts for everyone here today that knows you, the security and the safety of their belonging to you. And God, for anyone who does not know you today and wrestles with these things and fights with these things and isn't sure what to believe about these things, would today be the day where they would see, maybe for the very first time, the love and the compassion of your promise? And would they put their faith in you? Would they believe that you will do and have done what you said you would do so that we can be sons and daughters? And we pray all this in your beautiful name. Amen.